21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Disruption Proof was inspired by the last 10 years of working with very large enterprises. Typically, they're innovation groups, but it could be product groups, could be marketing groups. And leadership brought us in because they knew the world was changing and they needed their people to behave differently. And You know, big companies do reorganizations every couple of years because they need people to change their behavior, but they never really define very well what that behavior ought to be. And these reorganizations fail. And that's why they do them over and over again. So what inspired me to write the book was really, I have a method for that change. And it's not really me inventing everything. It's bringing together some of the best practices in the entrepreneurial world that will help large organizations change. Now, what to me was sort of interesting about that is I wrote this book, Disruption Proof, during COVID, during the height of the pandemic. And so the book changed. And the big change here was when I realized that transferring from analog into the digital world is a huge change, obviously. But what really is impacting businesses, and this is small business and startups as well as large organizations, is the ongoing disruptions that happen all of the time. And the pandemic was just the latest and maybe the biggest example in a, in, in a, in a long time. But there's been, you know, there's, there's war, there's uh, supply chain issues, there's inflation, there's ransomware attacks took down a healthcare system here in San Diego for several months. And so it's really that what the digital revolution has brought is this interconnectedness of the world such that things that are happening around the world ripple through all of our economies in ways like never before. So all of these things have happened in the past, but during the industrial age, we were relatively isolated from things that were going on on the other side of the world. But now the speed of information and the speed of disinformation, the digital economy, the power being with consumers that are making choices, uh, review sites and, and uh, social media and, uh, and, and just this interconnectedness means that all of the disruptions that are happening around the world ripple through the economy. And so change is sort of the new normal. It's, you know, it, it, I'm sure you've run across this. Uh, you know, you talk to leaders in big companies and they and they feel like you feel like they're just sitting there waiting out. Oh, well, you know, once the pandemic's over, we'll return to normal is what, you know, is what they say. It's what the pundits say. But there is no returning to normal. This is the new normal that there will be ongoing disruptions that affect our markets. They affect our businesses, they affect our opportunities. And so this really gets to the heart of the book, which is the way we manage and organize work is based upon the industrial age. And we're now in this interconnected world, this digital age, and those fundamental business practices don't work anymore, and we have to change them. And so that's really what Disruption Proof is about. It's not really 
how do you go and disrupt yourself or become a disruptive an innovation disruptor it's about how do you prevent yourself from failing because of all of these disruptions that are going on in the world where is the focus so for example engagement if you remember gallup q12 test so engagement is terrible and now we have remote work so it's 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 different again and that's right and so what what's going on so the focus has to be on recognizing the uncertainty recognizing that we don't know anymore it's fundamentally you have to be willing to say i don't know whereas in you know in the past even 10 years ago you were going to get hired and and promoted based upon what you knew and now to me the world is admitting what you don't know so you can go figure it out again so you wake up you know march early march 2020 nothing's going on everything seems normal by the end of march 2020 all your customers are gone so you have to be able to say listen we're facing such massive uncertainty we have to build what i call exploration behavior into the daily business so we have to admit when we don't know and then we have to be entrepreneurial in order to figure out what's the new game plan what are, what will our customers respond to what can our customers afford what are they worried about what are their aspirations how do we actually change our company in order to thrive and even and survive in in this new world and so gone is the top down command and control centric focused decision making and we're in this world where you have to delegate decision making you have to empower teams to be able to figure out what the right way to go is and you have to then formulate this new communication processes in order for people to get the information they need to make decisions it's just it's flipping the pyramid on its head where is the transformation so c level versus entrepreneurs traditional management practices you're not allowed to admit that you don't know and and really you probably succeeded because you figured out the blueprint this is how we need to execute and then you were able to manage people and create layers of management that double down and triple down on that blueprint and you succeeded in execution But so that works great in a very certain world with low complexity and you figured it out. So the example is you're in the 50s or the 60s and you want to manufacture microwave ovens. Your obstacles are, your risks are, do we have the right technology and their operational risks? Can we produce that microwave oven inexpensive enough that the middle class can afford them? If so, you know the middle class is going to is going to buy them because it creates so much value in in freeing up time and make, making life easier they're going to buy it there's very little market risk but there's high technical risk and high operational risk so then once you figure out how it works how you produce the product distribution supply chain marketing selling once you figure those things out you just want to repeat that blueprint as often as can and as cheaply as you can to increase your margins and that funnels growth and etc right So that's middle of the industrial age. 
your, your microwave oven doesn't need different colors. It doesn't need a bunch of different features. It just needs to work really well and work really easily. Fast forward to today, digital age. Now you got your microwave oven, you got to connect it to the internet somehow. You got to have like a dozen different models. All of the models have to come in different colors. You've got multiple companies that are creating microwaves that are as good as yours are. And so it's no longer technical risk. You know, you can build them. It's not operational risk. You know how to build them. It's market risk. What is the market segment that's going to buy our particular microwave oven with this set of features? And so you're actually then serving a bunch of really niche markets that they want this particular gourmet microwave that fits into my custom kitchen beautifully and has this and that. And I can tell with my iPhone when my, pro, you know, my meal's ready or whatever. It's, it's so right. Right. So it's super complex and it requires you to be able to change very quickly because if you don't change and you don't produce value for the customer, the customer just goes somewhere else. And it's not just that they'll go to a different microwave. Maybe they decide to buy a new refrigerator instead. You're actually competing for customers' mind share. And so there's so much uncertainty in the market side that that's actually where you need to have a more entrepreneurial spirit. So the biggest difference is inside of the old industrial age when everything was known, then you had people that knew how to execute on what was known. Entrepreneurs... They're starting a new business. They don't know what's going to work. Their job is to figure it out. And so they actually have to go out and talk to customers and they run experiments and they iterate and they're proving different aspects of their business model. That's what they're focused on. That's what startups do really well. They naturally are in exploration mode. They enjoy the chaos of not knowing what the blueprint is. They enjoy the process of creating that execution blueprint. And so that's the difference between the entrepreneur and the and the company's CEO. So now we live in the in this this different age. Not only does the startup have to maintain that ex, that exploration, right? They learn how to execute, but things change so quickly they have to stay on top of it. They have to continuously go, okay, I figured it out last year, but this year I don't understand anymore. I don't know how we're going to go into this new market. I don't know how we're going to sell, you know, this product into an emerging country. And so they have to go out and figure it out. They have to create a new blueprint in order to find new growth. And of course, that means that the big companies also, when they're launching new products or their market goes away because of a disruption like the pandemic, they have to act entrepreneurial in order to figure out what their new blueprint is. What do you think is the key to organic and sustainable growth then in all that chaos? Right. So it's constantly, continuously discovering new opportunities. So in the old world, it was very linear. Discover new opportunity, build the product, market it, sell it. And now all of those are loops. They're iteration loops. Like the moment you're done with one discovery and maybe you pass that off, you start immediately on the next discovery. And so this is really tough for small business owners to grasp. Because small business owners tend to want to maintain they're the experts. And what they actually have to do is find people that can execute on their expertise and then they have to go learn something new. And learning something new doesn't mean 
like a new technical expertise. It means where's my next growth going to come from? Is it, is it taking our existing technology and, and, and modifying it for a different market segment? Is it finding a new geography to go and explore and figure out how to sell into a new geography? Is it inventing new technology? I mean, there's, so there's all there's this whole vast world of exploration. And so that's really what the small business owner's job is. I figure out a market, a product or a service, and now I need to pass that off on to other people that execute what I figured out. And now my job is to go figure out what's the next leap of growth. I'm back in exploration mode. I figure it out again. I pass it off to people that do the execution and I'm going off onto learning again. And so it's a very difficult part for a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders is that part where they go like, okay, this is what I understand. And now I have to pass it off to somebody else because whomever you pass it off to will not do it as good as you, right? So the founder is going to pass it off to people that will not do it as good as the founder does it. And you have to live with it. And you have to understand that customer creating customer value is a threshold, not a continuum. So in other words, because I'm an expert as the founder, I'm actually creating waste. I'm wasting time and resources if I provide my customers a bunch of more value than what they would actually need to buy my product. Let's immerse a little bit more into that specific mindset. So we have flexibility, we have, we have acceptance in that realm of new circular epistemology. What else is important to that new mindset? Right. So, so this is going to sound maybe kind of radical, but my, I write in my book that the team is the new unit of work. So in my view, if you hire smart people and you get, form a team, and you give that team a very concrete mission and you give them the metrics that how you're going to measure their progress and the outcomes and you give them guardrails. So like, you know, stay within this avenue strategically and ethically. You then step back and you let the team go figure out the work that they're going to do to succeed. And so it's empowering a team. And what that does is frees up managers and owners so that they're not managing individuals and their fires and their problems. The team structure is a social structure that takes care of accountability and ethics and getting the job done. As individuals, you have to stay on top of them. As a team, the team takes care of a lot of that because of the social dynamic. It's how human beings work, right? If you're a hunter-gatherer tribe. You didn't go and hunt by yourself. You hunted as a team. They didn't need a boss that was sitting there telling them, go chase that particular animal. They, they knew how to do it, right? And so this is the same mentality. Is the team, the social structure of the team will, will take care of the work for, to a high degree. And then as a manager, I'm, measuring, I'm managing one entity, and that's the team, not the individual performers inside of that team. And that frees me up as a manager or as an owner. And I get to be more proactive and more strategic than if I have to sit there and manage individuals all day long. And who owns the pain if you are empowering team? If you screw something up, 
so that's really where agile comes in. I mean, the team is held accountable for their work. So, so you, as a, as a manager or an owner, you form this team and then you collaboratively, collaboratively come up with the mission statement. And then you, again, you give them the the way we're going to measure your success. And then you set up a cadence where that team has to report to you on a regular basis. You're not asking for an update. They're proactively giving you reports once a week, once every two weeks, whatever the cadence is on their progress towards the desired outcomes, their big wins, what are their obstacles, where they need help. And that's coming to the manager without them asking. And so if in the end there's failure, there's only failure for two reasons. One, because the manager didn't do a good job of defining the mission, or there was some outside influence, or the team failed to perform. And if the team failed to perform, you know, you've got to figure out, you've got to figure out what the cause is of that and fix it. But but my I think for the vast majority, if you're hiring smart people, we tend to manage their tasks instead of their outcomes. And what we want to do is measure the outcomes and then give them the responsibility for figuring out the tasks. You worked with big companies. What is your advice for business leaders who want to implement these changes in their companies? Yeah, so there's, so there's, you know, there's the examples exist at all sorts of different levels. The way we work with organizations is we come in, the teams have usually already been defined, and then we tackle real business issues. So, you know, they're trying to figure out new markets, or they're trying to figure out new products, or they're trying to be innovative, or they're, you know, it could be anything inside the business. They could be internal issues. But, but real business challenges, not fluffy or fake ideas. And we'll work with them for a week, two weeks, up to you, you three months are usually our longest engagements. And we're teaching them how to explore. So we're teaching them how to uh, understand their customers or their internal stakeholders deeply, how to run experiments, how to use evidence, and then how to actually pitch that evidence or share that evidence with leadership. And then we work with leadership to give them new skill sets on how they manage people that are working in this new way. And so, uh, and so what's cool about it is it's not, it's not people bringing up like just ideas like, oh, I got a great idea. Let's go do X, Y, Z. Instead, they bring evidence to the table. Well, we went and we interviewed 90 customers and 75 said this, and then we ran these experiments to validate their behavior, and 50% of them did X, Y, Z, and that proved to us that this assumption was correct. We're, We're demonstrating evidence, real market evidence, that a particular idea has legs. And so what they're essentially asking the leaders for, invest more resources in this idea because of the evidence, or shut it down because there's no evidence and don't waste any more money on this. So that's the process. We've worked with, you know, super large organizations doing huge projects like completely complete digital transformation to smaller ones where they've got 10 products in the market already and they're trying to bring them to new countries. And so what do they have to go figure out? So an example might be, so 
first, let me say, if you're actually just going to go and try this out in your company, my advice is start small, start with just a couple of teams, figure out internal process issues that the company faces. They can be big or small. It doesn't matter. But a lot of companies get worried when you're going to go out to your customers right away. So start with something that's internal where the customers are colleagues or internal stakeholders. Train the teams up on how to operate this way and then let them go demonstrate that, number one, they have the ability to do it. Number two, that you can actually drive real business impact in a very short period of time by doing this. And so one of the better examples I have is a clothing manufacturing in a company in uh, outdoor research in Seattle. They create, they build high out, out, uh, outdoor gear, including for like special forces and their normal process for coming up with new product samples took months, four months, and a constant back and forth between the design team and the manufacturing team. So the company went and invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in digital fabrication equipment that automated the process of manufacturing clothes. So digital cutters and digital sewers, it's just like really amazing stuff. But they didn't get any return on that investment because the people in the processes didn't change just because you brought in new technology. So in a two-day workshop where we had the design group act like startup entrepreneurial spirit and big and the manufacturing was the customer, they completely reinvented the way that the two groups inside the company worked together with the new technology. And so instead of it taking months for product samples to go through the cycle, it took just a couple of weeks. And so suddenly they're starting to get the return on the investment. So we all think about innovation and entrepreneurialism and, and digital transformation as being technological. But the biggest hurdle, it's sort of like what I talked about earlier. The technology is not really where the risk is. The risk is in the people and their behavior and the market and getting people to work in new ways in the digital world. And that's, the, that's actually the hard part. For... Startups or smaller businesses, the way they get started, again, it's taking something small. Maybe it's an internal facing. It could be external, but form one team, collaborate on what that mission statement is. In the example I just gave, the mission statement could be something like the job is, is to reinvent the way the design group works with the manufacturing group in order to bring product, new product sampling down to a two-week cycle instead of a four-month cycle. right? So it's, we got a way to measure it. So then you formulate the team. They don't have to be full-time. They can do this. You know, you have to give them some space and some time to do it. Um, but it could be a couple hours a day, or it could one, be one day a week or whatever you need. But you, but if you're, remember, if you're tackling an internal issue, it means that this exploration behavior is actually increasing the efficiency of execution. And so that can be what you keep in mind that we're going to dedicate this time to. So you have to give them the the space and time to work in this new way, you have to uplevel their skills a little bit. So you might have inside your company people that are already familiar with agile or lean startup or design thinking. And so that have them share with that team how to do some of this work, or you can bring in some outside consultants. There's a million of them and have them learn how to do that behavior and then set a time limit. You know, we're going to do this for a month or three months or whatever. And the goal is, is to demonstrate that that team can work in this new way in order to achieve that mission. And once you have seen that it's successful, that your people can do it and that it drives impact, 
you're gonna want to expand this into the re- everyday work because it's going to it's gonna result in growth. It's gonna result in new business. So that's the, those are my three steps on how to get started, and you know, form a team, give them a challenge, uh, and and give them a little bit of training and let them go. Don't manage their tasks. Their job is to report back to you on a regular cadence the progress that they're making and the challenges that they are uh, need help with. Uh, and as far as me goes, you know. Uh, a lot of these topics are discussed on my on my big company website, which is movestheneedle.com. Um, I've launched uh, online courses at startupbluebook.com that's going to c- cover some of these topics. Um, but other than that, I'm Brant Cooper on all social media, and I really encourage your listeners to reach out to me, Brant at brantcooper.com. I respond to all of that. Connect with me on LinkedIn if you'd like. And I'd love to hear how people are uh, are giving you know, giving it a try to implement some of these thoughts. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.